Do you struggle with social anxiety? Are you someone who dreads blushing so much it creates feelings of shame and inadequacy? Do you class yourself as a highly sensitive person? Well, if so, you may love my interview with my next guest, Russell Norris, who battled with a debilitating social anxiety disorder and talks about his experiences in his brilliant book called Red Face and How I Learned to Live with Social Anxiety. It's a very open and honest conversation I think you will get a lot from. Welcome to the Mindset Change Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Shepard, who's on a mission to help as many people as I can change their mindsets so they can transform their lives. If you've not yet subscribed, please do hit the little plus button at the top of the app as it really helps the show grow, reach and help as many people as possible. Plus, you won't miss another episode. Are you ready for my interview with Russell? Let's go. And I want to welcome Russell Norris. How are you? Hi, Paul. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for uh, bringing me in today for a chat. Yeah, no, I'm very happy you're here because I've just finished your book, uh, Red Face, um, How I Learned to Live with Social Anxiety. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for being so open and honest about your experience of social anxiety. Because often I read these books and sometimes they're just full of helpful tips, but you really did dive deep into your experiences and uh, you were very open about what you've been through. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your social anxiety disorder and where you think it came from and what its impact on you were was, was like for as you were growing up? Yeah, so my social anxiety uh, kind of arrived for me with a bang in adolescence and um, other people I've spoken to who have social anxiety, they all tend to say similar things that they first started feeling genuinely socially anxious around the age of puberty. Um, Mm. For me, it kicked in around age 13, 13, 14 in secondary school. Um, I just noticed that I was very, very nervous in classrooms, uh, very scared of being asked to answer questions and things like that by the teacher which spread to being uh, scared of being around my friends at school and just being in the general school environment, um, which led to me for blushing. So I think social anxiety manifests in different ways for different people. Um, Some people develop very specific fears like eating in front of other people, for example, um, Mm. uh, or writing in front of other people or, you know, being looked at by other people. Um, For me, because I began blushing very easily, uh, I started fearing that blush response in front of other kids at school, um, which made me not want to be around those kids at school, uh, which then led to me skipping school, um, Hmm. which led to cycles of avoidance, which is probably something we're going to talk about as we, you know, move through this chat. But um, that's when it began for me. It was in in secondary school around the time of puberty. Um, and I had no idea what it was. Uh, I just thought I was a, you know, quite a shy bookish kid who preferred my own company. And that's a lot of the time what I tried to do, just try and be on my own, uh, you know, watching TV, reading books, playing video games. Cause I just much, I felt much calmer in those situations when I wasn't around other people. Uh, Cause I really did get very anxious and, and, and irrationally scared as a kid and it only got worse as I got older but that's when it began for me is moving into adolescence 
Do you know, I mean, that's, that's quite a common experience and I can relate to that having had a social anxiety disorder myself, as in that's what's uh, led to me having this um, whole podcast and career. But where do you think it might have come from for you? So obviously it began to materialize when you were in your teens, but was something happening before that that you've ever, you ever you know, gone back into your past and thought, I mean, because you talk about key experiences when you were younger, and some of them quite traumatic, but do you think that it was inherited? Do you think it was something to do with, you know, we talk about mum and dad and how our relationship with them, that they, they, you know, we can develop anxiety from there. What, what about you? What, where do you think it might have come from? Yeah, I'm, 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 I, it's a difficult question to answer, really. It's kind of like a chicken and egg. Mm. Um, and it's also that whole nature versus nurture argument. Um, I kind of feel like it's a mixture of environment and kind of, you know, the genetics I was given through my family. Um, I feel like I was always a bit of a jumpy, nervy kid, um, just physically jumpy and nervy. Like I was always very um, kind of shaky as, uh, growing up. Like, I, you know, my, my hands would tremble quite easily. Um, my, my physical reaction to, to fear was quite, quite strong. So I think that kind of didn't necessarily help. The fact that I manifested things so physically um you know the, the signs of anxiety um but then the, in terms of specific experiences i mean there's a couple of things that always stand out in my mind and they're two experiences i touch on in the book um one was having piano lessons with a piano teacher who absolutely terrified me um mm. and she was a very old school kind of teacher who um just tried to hammer things into you until you got them right um and she didn't understand why I couldn't perform in front of her. I couldn't play the piano and get it right while she was in the room. Um, and so that ended with her deciding that I had learning difficulties and that I shouldn't take the piano anymore. I shouldn't learn the piano, uh, which was a, a real kind of misreading, I think, of my my state mm -hmm. at that time. I don't think she understood or even, you know, had an inkling that it might not be ability. It might be something else like I, I couldn't perform in front of her. Um, the other thing is I, I used to do some competitive swimming when I was younger. And I guess the, these both of these experiences were before the social anxiety really arrived when I was about 13. So we're going back to when I was probably like nine, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, I used to swim a lot, which led to swimming competitively. And I grew to really hate that experience of competing against other kids in races um, because of the, the pressure that that was rightly there, but I blew out of all proportion in my mind beforehand. I used to worry for days in advance before I used to swim in these competitions to the point where I'd feel physically sick before getting in the water to swim, um, which isn't hugely uncommon. I don't think, you know, having nerves before a sporting event is, is common. And a lot of people say it can be a good thing because it gives you an edge and it, you know, it shows that you care about the sport and you care about your performance. Um, but I, I did notice after a while that I just, it really filled me with a, a deep dread uh, to the point where I didn't want to do the swimming anymore um, because it was making me feel sick. Um, and to this day, the, the smell of chlorine when I walk into a swimming pool takes me right back to being nine years old and terrified of swimming. It, it's a real kind of sensory trigger. Um, I start feeling nervous and my hands get sweaty when I walk into a swimming pool environment and I smell chlorine. That's a real kind of embedded trigger uh, it doesn't stop me swimming and, you know, it's, 
I, I'm not afraid of getting into swimming pools or anything like that. I wouldn't be afraid to swim in a race now, I don't think, as an adult. But it's still there as a physical response when I smell it. Um, so those, those are two things that I remember uh, that probably don't seem that traumatic at all. You know, learning the piano and going swimming or swimming against your peers as a kid. Um, but that's often well, what social anxiety is. Just, you know, it's the small yeah. things that don't trouble other people that do trouble you. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in your book, you talked about the swimming, and I thought you might have gone to that one event, the um, the the one race that you mentioned, which um, you were disqualified from uh, because uh, you know you stood on the podium and then you'd uh, you'd done something within the race where I think you'd flipped over. And uh, apparently that was breaking the rules. And again, that's it. That, you know, for a young guy, you know, like yourself, that would have been hugely traumatic to experience. And I, you know, I was quite impressed, you know, that when your parents talked to you about, you know, uh, did you want to carry on swimming after that? And I think you were quite open about the fact that it made you quite ill. Yeah, I just, I just owned up to it and just said specifically to my dad, because he used to be a swimmer. And that's why I was doing some swimming as well, um, that I just, it was not fun for me at all. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And it was, yeah, it was making me just feel terrible. Um, and he, you know, all credit to him, he did pick up on that and asked me if I wanted to do swimming anymore. And I, I said, no. Um, and it was the same for the piano lessons. My mum on that occasion said, do you want to continue with these lessons? Because you don't look like you're having much fun at all. And I said, no. And so we stopped. And I think, you know, looking back on those moments, I do kind of regret it because it means I didn't follow a sport when I was younger and it means I gave up music. Um, I guess that was the beginning of avoidance for me. You know, I, f I found these situations really, really hard. So I avoided them by not doing them anymore. And I do regret that looking back on it. Those are two, you know, fairly common examples, but it means I didn't follow through with them. Um, and you, you may have heard, you've probably heard this term, Paul, that social anxiety is often referred to as the illness of missed opportunities. Um, mm, yes. And I, yes. I take issue with the term illness, I think, but the rest of that statement makes a lot of sense to me because, uh, you know, when you're so anxious about something that you, you're always steering away from it, it means you do miss out on a lot of things that those situations can bring to your life. Um, and those are two examples of, you know, pursuits I never followed because I was so anxious in those situations. Yeah, I hear that quite a lot. And, you know, it's something that I, I like to remind myself of, for, you know, with and also clients is that um, even, at, you know, because regret can be quite toxic, you know, when we go back to what we think we should have done differently, what we would like to have done differently, because in a way we're kind of implying that we're in the wrong place now and that we would be better people now if we'd done those things. And in a way that's kind of placing us in the idea that there's something wrong with us still. Um, and I always say to clients, if you could have done something different back then, like if you'd had the resources to be able to manage your anxiety or uh, to you know, process and manage it in a certain way or you'd be able to calm it down, maybe that would have helped you, uh, you know, not miss out on those opportunities. But you didn't. So I also say to people, if you could have done anything any different back then, you would have, but you couldn't. And sometimes that can be, uh, you know, give a sense of relief that you're not in the wrong place. You're not in the right, you know, in, you know, there's nothing wrong with you right now, 
it's just the idea that you should have been doing something different and those shoulds can be quite toxic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that, that way of looking at it. And that, that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, had I known how to deal differently with those situations, I think I, mm. I would have. Um, but part of my problem was I, I didn't seek help for mm. quite a long time. Um, you know, I, I internalized all of, all of the anxiety didn't really realize it even kind of had a name or a label. Um, I think the first time I ever spoke to anybody about how badly it was affecting me when I was, I was about 20 or 21 years old, uh, about in my last year of university. Um, so I, I kept things very much to myself until then. And I, I also, my, my hunch and from the many people I've now spoken to who also struggle with social anxiety and blushing, uh, my hunch is that people generally don't want to step forwards and talk about the anxiety because that's part of the phobia in itself is, is putting the spotlight on you stepping mm. out and admitting something so personal to another person is part of the fear, part of the social phobia. So doing that is a very difficult first step for people with social anxiety. Um, I know I found it very hard at 21 just to speak to my doctor. And did they, you know, when I went to my doctor with anxiety, um, it wasn't helpful at all. It was, here's some medication. And I was simply just too frightened to take it. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I got anxious about that. So what about you? Did you get any help from the doctor? Was it helpful for you? It, it was helpful to say to another human being what was troubling me so much. Um, that part felt like a big weight temporarily came off my shoulders um i was very anxious about going to see the doctor I, I you know i went around in circles for weeks even months i think beforehand before I, I actually did it in the end and went through the doors and spoke to him um and i i was doubly anxious because he was a family doctor he knew my mum and dad and my brother was friends with his son and i just had this worry at the back of my mind that it was going to get back to my mum and dad or to my family that i'd gone to him and told him that I was uh, cracking up at university. Um, so I was, I was worried about that, even though um, obviously that wouldn't happen and didn't happen. Um, but he, he kind of listened to me, um, said, it sounds like you're very anxious and you're going through a hard you know, final year at university. Um, I, I did specifically say it's around people and I get very nervous and I can't keep my train of thought when I'm in seminars at university and, and things like that. And he did say it might be coming from a place of social anxiety with in, some intrusive thoughts, um, you know, telling me that I couldn't be in a room with these people. And he, mm. his suggestion was, there, there were two things. He, he suggested medication. One was something to lower my blood pressure. I can't remember what that was called, um, but I did take that for a while and it did seem to help. It made me feel less hot and flustered constantly. Mm. Um, the other thing he prescribed me was some antidepressants. Um, which I, I went on a course of those for, it must have been close to a year, I think, eight months to a year, um, for my final year, basically, at university. And it took a long time for them to kick in. And when they did kick in, I didn't really enjoy the way they made me felt, feel. Um, they kind of, I don't know, they, they, they put me into these uh, kind of zombie-ish states that I wasn't enjoying the experience of. Um, Felt like I couldn't concentrate, felt like I slipped off into daydreams that would last for 40, 50 minutes at a time. Um, 
I felt like it was take removing my anxiety, but also removing my personality. Um, and I, I just didn't like how it made me feel. So I eventually came off those, um, which was around the time I was leaving university and going out into the workforce to try and get a job. Um, so I was coming off antidepressants as I left university. Yeah, I mean, that's a common experience. I hear that quite a lot from people who've taken medication. Um, and sometimes it's necessary. You know, some people really do need that level of uh, anxiety uh, brought right down. But a lot of people do report not feeling connected with themselves, zombie-like states, uh, you know, daydreaming. Um, and again, it's often that doesn't help the problem, I think, for some people. It just masks the symptoms to a degree, but it gives them new symptoms to maybe to struggle with. I'm going to go back to uh, just something I wanted to mention to you, actually. Some of your symptoms reminds me of when I was interviewing Claire Kumar. Um, she's a highly sensitive person coach. And it uh, just some of your symptoms remind me of, of uh, being highly sensitive. It's where your nervous system's highly tuned into your environment around you. So loud noises, uh, people eating, movies, you know, that are, are quite intense or scary. Uh, social anxiety can feel much worse because your nervous system is so heightened to um, trying to process everything that's going on around you. Have you ever heard of that term or is that something that you... Um, I have, to. yeah, the high, high sensitivity, yeah. and I, there's a book called The Highly Sensitive Person, which I, I've read in the past. Okay, um, and I can, I can relate to a lot of that. You know how uh, sensory input can overwhelm a highly sensitive mm. person, um, and I often feel like that. Um, it was well, particularly obviously in social situations, but there are moments as well where um, just sound uh, just really affects me. You know. Mm if a balloon pops at a party, for me, it sounds like a machine gun's gone off and I just, I'm really jumpy and I start to worry in advance about balloons popping. Um, so when I'm at a child's birthday party where, you know, ordinarily you would be totally relaxed and having fun, I'm watching the balloons and, and, and kind of cringing when a kid goes near it, cause it's going to go off and mm -hmm. to me, make me jump out of my skin. Um, and that's, that's a case of high sensitivity being tied in with the, the nervous system. Um, yeah. And I think that that has tied into my blushing as well for my whole life. Like I, um, I basically blush very easily or I blush less easily now, but when I was younger, it was at the drop of a hat. You know, it was anything that if the wind changed direction, it, it seemed, it felt like I would blush. Mm. Um, so I just felt highly, highly tuned, I guess, highly strong might be the word. Yeah. And uh, again, so what I love about Claire Kumar's work, and I've not, I've not, uh, I don't know the book that you're referring to, but it's the owning of being highly sensitive and seeing it as a bit of a superpower. You know, you have a, you have a different skill set, if you like, because um, we do fall under, don't we, this idea that there's this normal person, almost like this, you know, that, that we should all be trying to be like, and, um, and it creates this myth of normal. So if we're experiencing anything different we can feel like an outsider like there's something wrong with us and just listening to you talk about what your experience is I, I'm reading your book I, can, I, I got a sense of you feeling like an outsider you know everyone else is in a club you're not quite in it you talked about um, there's a, a quite a touching moment of um, your dad built a, a you know some uh, you know like a playground in in the in the uh, on the lawn uh, the kids came to play on it um, and you retreated and were on your own and um, it would just you'd, you'd isolate yourself so 
um, in, in a way that that myth is normal, I think, has a quite a big impact on that there's something different about us and that we should be ashamed of it. Yeah, and I, th- I think that myth of normal really comes true in something like the modern workplace, for example, in the office. Um, I don't work in an office anymore. I work from home five days a week, and that's purely because of COVID. Um, COVID changed the way I work, uh, and I, I do prefer it this way, I have to say, working remotely and conducting meetings through a computer. For me, I find that much easier, but for, for you know, a good 20 years, almost 20 years um, of my career, I've been in an open plan office. It's always open plan. Any office I've, I've ever been in has been structured that way. And that's, I guess that's a, a myth of norm, normality because mm. um, not everyone is an extrovert who wants to be surrounded by people all day long when they're trying to work. Um, I know I wasn't. I was always trying to find places where I could go to get some quiet and to concentrate and to not have people coming up to me all day and to not worry about people coming up to me all day. Um, Mm. I think obviously things have shifted now and thoughts around work have changed, but that's, that's a clear example of that, that myth, I think that to get the best out of people, they all have to be in the same place with each other all the time. Yeah. They generally, there's a generalization, isn't there? That we should all be the same. We all work the same. Um, And if you try to do anything different, then you, you can get called all sorts of names in the media. You can get called woke. Um, you know, you can get called, you know, always a bit sensitive, always a bit precious. Or, you know, I remember once someone saying to me, all right, then princess, what do you want to do? You know, and I'm just, it's just because that's how I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, going to the blushing side of things, I think a lot of people will be really interested in, in your experience of that. Um, you talk about... Um, two types of blushing, which was of interest in your book. I've not heard of these before, the way that you experienced a fast blush and a slow blush, which I think, again, just reading that, I thought, God, yeah, of course, that must be, you know, I don't have that experience, but could you tell uh, the listeners what you know, a fast blush and slow blush actually is? Because I, I, I think it's really relatable. relatable. I think those are the two ways I've always experienced a blush. And that's why I tried to just break them into these two moments, because for Mm. me, they are two Mm. slightly different things. Um, The fast blush is when, well, as the name described, suggests, it it happens quickly. Um, For example, if someone comes up to me and I'm not expecting it, uh, you know, my brain will fire off my blush response and I'll, I'll turn bright red. And it happens very quickly in the space of maybe two or three seconds, the blush is full on, uh, bright red face, and it lasts for, you know, 10 to 15 seconds and then slowly subsides and goes away. Um, And I I can move on unless the person has mentioned the fact that I've blushed and gone red. And that's probably one of the worst things you can say to someone who blushes is, you know, why have you gone so red? What's, you're so red right now. Um, Are you okay? That that kind of stuff. It's just, it makes it worse. but it's all over fairly quickly and the blush goes away. But if I'm in a different situation where, for example, I'm in a, a, an hour long meeting um, and let's say for the last 10 minutes of that meeting, I'm going to have to present something or say something. I will start turning red at the beginning of that meeting. The blush will build and build and it lasts on my neck, on my face, um, up until the point where I have to say something or do something. And by then it's it's arrived. I'm, I'm covered in a hot flush. Mm. Um, I will say what I need to say. It will get even worse during that time. 
And then afterwards, it will probably take another hour to go away to completely have the blood recede away from my face and neck. Mm. And during that hour, I just don't really want to be seen by anyone because uh, they're, they're going to come and ask me why I'm so red or, you know, what, what's happened? You look like you're having an allergic reaction. Um, I don't want to be around people. So I kind of like try and escape for that hour until I can cool down. And they're, they're two, it's, it's essentially blushing, but, you know, one lasts for a long time and one is there and then gone again quite quickly. But they're both equally distressing. Um, and I've always experienced them in that way. What one's one's a flash in the pan and one is is longer lasting. Mm. And I think it's probably the long blush that's harder to deal with, the slow blush. Um just because it's there for longer and it, it bothers me for longer. Um and it's something I I tend to think about more afterwards. Um after a blush, I tend to kind of run it over in my head, like how silly did I look or what did other people think about me? Mm. Do they think I'm unprofessional now? Or do they think I, I'm hiding something? Or do they just think I'm a bit strange? Uh, all these thoughts go round and round in my head and it just makes me fear the next situation even more. Um, so there's a definitely a vicious cycle that comes from these fast and slow blushes mm. as well. Such a great description. I think, as I said, I think that's so relatable. Do you, you know, I don't know what you've done in regards to where you are now with it, but have you normalized blushing? Are you, because is blushing the problem? Is it, or is it your perspective of the blush that's the problem? You know, if you have this idea that you, I shouldn't blush, then when you blush, then it's, uh, then again, it comes back to this idea that you're doing something wrong. So where are you at the moment with that? So these days, um, I've, I care much less about the fact that I do blush. Um, I took a conscious decision to accept the fact that I blush, that it's part of who I am. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned before, I try and find strengths instead of weaknesses. So you mentioned high sensitivity being like a superpower. Uh, I, I try and see the, the blessing that can come with something like social anxiety and, and blushing instead of focusing on the curse, because at, at times it can feel like you've been personally cursed with something. Um, but I, I've tried for a, a long time now to flip that around and think of the, the, the plus points that it brings to my life instead. I mean, you, you mentioned being, being more sensitive to the world around you, ha having more um, emotional intelligence, mm. um, being more skilled at being alone and, you know, working alone and finding a deep sense of flow and creativity alone. Um, some people don't like that. They don't like to be alone and they can't, they can't get things done that way. But I feel like I can, I get two or three times as much done when I'm alone. Um, so the, the, the blushing, it still, it still bothers me when it happens. I still wish it didn't happen. Um, but it's, it's such an intrinsic part of who I am that I've just come to accept it. And I found that the acceptance has helped me to blush less because I worry about it less. Um, so it seems to happen less often to me. Um, and I've more or less made my peace with it. I mean, writing a book about it and telling the whole world uh, about the blushing and the redness, you would think wouldn't help, but it, it, it has helped me in a big way, actually, because I find the more people that know, the less of a secret I have to carry around inside my head. 
Um, yeah. I feel like it's just out there now. So for me, it's easier because it's not, it's not something I have to um, worry about or try to defend if it happens. Um, because I've already admitted it. I've kind of confessed, if you will. Mm. So it's yeah. already out there. Yeah. And I don't have to be scared of it anymore. And that's helped me a lot. And I've, I've, I've pretty much made my peace with it. I mean, I, I'm 42 years old now and I, I still blush and go red in situations. But, you know, there are times when I'm out and about and I see it happen to other people. Mm. And it reminds me that mm. I'm not alone and I, I've never been alone. And it's actually pretty common. Um, if, you are, if I open my eyes and, and look around, it happens a lot. It even happens to people you know, who you think it might not happen to. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I take, take heart from that. Um, but there are other things I've, I've developed along the way. I mean, I don't know if you wanted to talk about any kind of coping strategies or. Yes, please. I, the listeners will be going, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So what, what have you learned? To, how, how, what's helped you, Russell? Because actually, just before you go into your coping strategies and what tips you could give listeners, something that you thought helped, but you know, didn't help. And I'm doing a, a few episodes on this very subject coming up, but this, this is going to be a nice little intro for it, to be honest, is you, your use of alcohol and how, you know, you, you, you would use alcohol, which I did, I've done too, uh, to try and feel more confident, to try and take the edge off um, when you're going to be in a social situation. Could you just talk a little bit about what you thought it was going, what it was doing, and then what happened, and then what, you know, how you got out of that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty common, right, to hmm. go out and have a drink to grease the wheels uh, to make social interaction easier. That That's common. Um, what's not common is having a drink in the morning before you go into work, uh, which is a pattern that I fell into because there were days when I found it really difficult to go into the office because I knew I had a stressful day ahead or there was mm. going to be some point where I'd have to lead a meeting or, or do a presentation or, or whatever it was. Um, and I just desperately wanted to take that edge off. And I knew that if I had a drink beforehand, I often found things easier. I mean, that, that's, that's a common experience, knowing that alcohol lowers inhibitions. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I got to a point where I, I was drinking before I went into work to get through the workday, um, which was not a good situation to be in. Um, and I managed to realize that and course correct. But there were times when I did that. I mean, I, the, the first time I used to hate job interviews. I mean, I used to think, how am I ever going to get a job? How am I going to ever get through the interviews? I used to worry and worry about it. And the, the first, the, the, my first job coming out of university, when I went for that interview, I drank a whole bottle of wine before I went in to the interview and I got the job. Mm. I mean, I can't, I don't know if they realized, I mean, I took very careful steps to try and hide the fact that I had a bottle of wine, um, you know, mints and brushing my teeth and the mm. fact that I could hold my alcohol very convincingly by that point. Um, and I got the job and I think that gave me a false sense of security that I could drink and no one would know. And so that's why I started doing it more at work. Um, and eventually that bites back. You can't keep that up forever. And a few people even noticed that I was drinking in the mornings and I was very embarrassed of that. And I was worried I might lose my job. So I stopped um, and found healthier ways to try and, and cope. Um, but it's always there in the back of my mind. I mean, I, when I go out now, 
even for an evening out with with other parents or with uh with friends i always i'm i feel like I, if there wasn't any alcohol there i'd be pretty uncomfortable mm. it needs to be there to, to grease the wheels for me um and i suppose that's not a very healthy attitude either towards alcohol um you know always hoping it will be there or else it's going to be a stressful night out um but i think that's a, a quite a common truth for a lot of people that you know yeah. they, they look for a drink to make make things easier and make things more social yeah it, it and um i stopped drinking last year hence why i'm talking about some of the episodes coming up because as a mindset coach i think the information that was coming out especially more recently about alcohol and anxiety is that it just makes it worse regardless of what we feel about it 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 starts to remove some of the receptors GABA receptors that help us feel calm and GABA is a neurotransmitter which slows down activity in the brain and nervous system so we're investing in becoming more anxious in the future uh so as as a mindset coach I had to uh stop drinking uh last year and it has been one of the best things I've ever done uh and I'm going to talk about my journey with that because as even as a mindset coach I went into a beautiful state of denial for a very long time that it was doing anything negative to me (laughs) despite some of the bad decisions um, I would even make whilst uh whilst drinking um but what so obviously you you got a healthier relationship with alcohol by the signs of things it's moving in that direction what else has helped you um cope with anxiety and uh, social anxiety blushing so something i discovered fairly early on and it, it it sounds very obvious um but it's probably the easiest uh coping mechanism that's available to me and, and to others is it's physical exercise um mm. but not not just physical exercise using it strategically so exercising strategically um if I know I'm going to be in a social situation that's going to make me anxious, I'll go for a long run beforehand. If I can, if I can fit it in and it works, I'll go for a long run. And I find that helps to burn up the adrenaline that I always feel like is coursing through my veins, Mm. um, helps to lower blood pressure. And I feel much less likely to blush after I've done some hard exercise. It seems to remove that, that, the floodgate gates that open for me when I blush that 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 seems to go down and I feel less anxious and I feel more comfortable um because a lot of that energy that anxious energy has left my body it will come back obviously um so then I will just exercise again and I'll try and make it happen so that it's around the time or just before uh I know that I'm going to be feeling anxious or put in an anxious position and that's really helped me. I used to do that at work before I had to mm. present something or, or give a talk. And it used to used to help me a lot. Um, it's not a silver bullet by any means. And sometimes I'd be so anxious it, it didn't necessarily still work. But, you know, it has the added benefit of it's very hard to sometimes, you know, make yourself go out for a run or to exercise if it's raining and cold. Um, but if it's going to help you, you know, lower your phobia, that, you know, there's no better motivation to get out and do it. And I, I just found that's what was getting me out there running. The mm. fact that if I didn't, I'd feel more anxious in situations. And so exercising has been a big help for me and body and mind are tied so closely. Um, that's made a big difference to me. Um, 
working from home has helped me a lot as well. I know that's the new normal now since COVID. Yeah. Um, but before COVID, I think it's easy to forget. It was actually kind of hard to work from home. I had to, I, I worked for one day from home before we had the pandemic and asking my boss for a day to work from home almost felt stigmatized. Mm. Uh, like I, I had to justify myself, you know, why do you need to be at home when the rest of us are at work? Are you just going to skive off? Um, that attitude was still very much around just a few years ago. It's amazing how quickly it's changed. Now people are trusted to work from home and uh, some people get a lot more done from home. So for me, working not in an office and remotely has been a big difference. I don't have that daily anxiety of being around everyone. Um, but I do recognize the need to not isolate. You know, I don't want to be at home all the time, not interacting with people because mm -hmm. uh, social anxiety will can creep back in and I have to keep exercising those muscles yeah. of so social skills. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a complete advocate for sh shutting yourself in and never leaving your home and to be, you know, to be with colleagues again. I do think there's a balance to be found. Um, I think we mentioned the seeing the the blessing instead of the curse, trying to see the positives mm. um, to the fact that you blush. I mean, uh, there's some evidence that um, people who blush are seen as more trustworthy, that the mm. the natural response to seeing someone blush is that you trust them more because they find it hard to conceal things. They can't yeah, yeah. lie very well because they blush. Uh, so the, the kind of unconscious response is that you trust them more, or you find them uh, easier to confide in. That, you know, th that that's a desirable thing that happens from blushing that is good to, you know, look at and see as a positive. Um, something else, a coping, it's not really a coping mechanism for me. It's, it's, it's more than that. This is a, the only medication I've ever found useful for blushing and anxiety for me is beta blockers. Okay. Um, okay. I had it prescribed for me the first time when I was learning to drive. So I was very anxious behind the wheel. I'd get very sweaty, shaky, and it was affecting my ability to drive. Um, so I, I got some beta blockers from the doctor and a lot of those physical symptoms seemed to go away. You know, the trembling, the sweating, even the blushing was reduced. Mm. Um, so for a while I was uh, given a course of beta blockers and I was using those strategically in situations where I felt like I might blush. But then I felt like I was using them a bit too much. Um, and I guess I, I'm choosing that term use quite consciously. I was using them too much because I, yeah. I found I was coming a bit emotionally reliant on them. Yeah. Um, they're not physically addictive, but emotionally I would, you know, be feeling in my pockets, hoping I had enough beta blockers left for the rest of the week or for the rest of the month. Um, and I just found it was, uh, it was distressing me if I didn't have them, I'd become reliant on them emotionally. Yeah. yeah. So I tried to stop using beta blockers, um, even though they're, they're pretty harmless and you take, take them in very low doses. Um, I don't really want to be reliant on any any medication if I don't have to. Um, so I've tried to phase those out, the beta blockers, even though they, they do come in useful sometimes. Um, I think ultimately that the biggest coping mechanism for me or the biggest step forwards was talking about the blushing and the anxiety. Brilliant. Um, speaking Brilliant. to the doctor, speaking to my friends, family, um, 
that's been a huge help and it's, it's really taken some of the power out of the vicious cycle that goes round and round in my head when it comes to anxiety you know what are people going to think therefore i don't want to be making mistakes in front of people again yeah therefore i won't put myself in front of people again and then you go down those avenues of avoidance um now that i'm not really worried about what other people think because i've spoken to them about it or i've spoken to other people at least and it's not just my own secret to carry alone anymore um I fear it less. And so it helped to break that cycle. And I, I genuinely blush less as a result. Um, so talking to somebody would be probably almost my number one piece of advice when it comes to coping strategies. Yeah, you'd, uh, you'd be amazed yeah. just how much positivity comes from telling someone else. Yeah, you've changed. It sounds like you've changed your relationship with it, which I think is a, a key foundation for any type of anxiety issue is to change your perspective of it. You're, you're beginning to, you've begun to explore the benefits of blushing, of being an HSP. Um, you know, I, I think anxiety woke me up and has given me so many gifts in regards to, uh, you know, having empathy, um, really wanting to connect on deeper levels with myself and other people. Um, there's so much in the way that can come from having an experience uh, like yours and mine. Um, I just want to say thank you. We're running out of time, but I want to say thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your advice with uh, with me. Um, I'm going to put your details into the show notes. As there's, there's not much in the way of social media is there, and there's nowhere anyone can connect with you and talk about um, your book, Red uh, Face. Is there? Or? I'm probably most active on, on this on this topic. I'm most active on Twitter. Okay, um, and people can find me at beyond the blush beyond the blush i'll put the details on the show notes um but thank you so much russell it's really good to meet you um and i've really read uh, the book red face is out now um i'll put a link in the show notes it's definitely a wonderful read uh very touching and, and even it says on the cover uh, it is deeply moving uh so thank you for sharing because i think a lot of people would learn a lot from this if you are tired of anxiety and want to take action then I am running a two-hour online anxiety freedom workshop on Thursday the 30th of March at 6.30pm British Summertime. The last class absolutely loved it and in feedback would highly recommend it to people they know. If you are interested, contact me in the show notes for details and if you're a Patreon member, you get an automatic discount too. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the Mindset Change podcast. I'm very grateful to have you here. Remember to stay awake, stay aware and have the most incredible day. Mm -hmm.